You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kivalevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Oh, this is The Story with Love, a criminal justice reform podcast, and we have a great honor indeed. I'm here with Yitzchak Kowalkowski, who of course is the head of chaplain services in Weimart. He's actually not with us personally, but as usual, he is uh, on the road and is giving us all to be part of this conversation that he was crucial in developing, which is with one of his colleagues at the uh, Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, the director of the psychology office there, Dr. Lucas D. Maliszczyk, DBA. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But he has written a very important piece that was already circulated in the uh, magazine that is called Correct Care. And he has presented his findings about something that we think is very crucial for our audience to hear about. And that is about the reason behind why suicides occur in prison and what are the ways, doctors, that we, what we can do to limit that. And I think also, not only is, I think this will be informative about what you have discovered, but I think what's informative and I find fascinating is the fact that how you came to discover this. And I think that this could even be a case study of how to use statistics properly and how to get the most out of statistics and how to allow them to shake yourself out of your preconceived notions of what you believe must be right, uh, right? When you say so, I think, uh, and that's why I think that over and beyond the very important issue of, of self-immolation, I think it's also a model of how we need to gather information and how we need to be willing to address a situation and see things with a new perspective. So doctor, why don't you take us through this incredible discovery and what you were able to bring to the table here? Sure. Well, I would start off by saying uh, first uh, to both of you gentlemen, thank you so very much for inviting me uh, to tell my team's story and um, our organization's story. This is certainly a a work that is beyond uh, one person. Uh, There's a big village behind this, uh, to say the least. And, uh, you know, the the team at the forefront of this was the, the psychology office. And so, yeah, I think your your brief summary there of this issue um, has a lot to do with learning from our mistakes too, and learning from our professional mistakes and attempting to find progress and advancement in our field to make the prison setting in Pennsylvania safer. Uh, our administration has made it quite clear that that is that needs to be foundational in every single thing we do in our work is to figure out how to make. Uh, the place safer, not only for our staff, but for those people who are uh, incarcerated here. So very accurate characterization of the problem. As my, as my colleague, Rabbi Kolakowski always says, this is about corrections. It isn't about punitive punishment. <laughs> it isn't about excommunication. So in 2018, we had a cluster of suicides in the Department of Corrections. We had five suicides that happened in the first 90 days. And we know that over the past uh, 15 to 20 years, a system our size, we were averaging eight suicides. So to have five within the first 90 days was, we needed to figure out what was going on and what the, the, the main problem was. Our initial impulse was that we began a, a deep dive into these five 
suicide deaths. And we tried to identify common themes or any common problems in these five deaths. And as we started doing that, we, we kind of used some basic statistical understanding of, of numbers and said, you know, even if we look at five deaths, in order for us to learn more about the broader problem, we needed to look at more deaths, unfortunately. And what we did was uh, that shelved data. Uh, we dug into almost 200 suicides that happened over the span of 18 to, to 20 years. And uh, we found a lot of new information that we hadn't deep dig into figuring out, are there any systemic broad issues that we're missing? And so we, we uncovered a lot of new information. And one of the most startling pieces of information that we found of these 150 or 160 suicides was the percentage of deaths that we had categorized as being double-celled at the time that they had died. And so for us, and my office was categorizing this data over a long period of time, um, we had categorized uh, almost one out of every four of these 160 deaths to be double-celled. So for us in prison, being double-celled means that there's two people in the cell and one of those persons kills themselves while the other person is present. And my experience over the last 10 years in having reviewed every single one of these suicides that happened, at least in the last decade, I couldn't remember uh, maybe one incident where there were actually two people in a cell and one person took their life. So for me, one out of every four of all of the suicides that have happened in the last 18 years that were categorized as double-celled, I knew there was a problem with that. So what we did was we went back to those original five suicides that happened in the cluster at that one prison. And we looked at this unique factor of housing status. And what we discovered was we had categorized three of the five suicides to have been double-celled. And again, three out of five turns out to be 60%. That seems alarmingly high. So we dug into the, those three suicides and we discovered that we had made a mistake. And of those three suicides, actually only one of the suicides was there actually two people in a cell and one of those persons had taken their life with the other person present. In the other two suicides of that three, the person was double-celled, but they didn't kill themselves until their cellmate left the cell. So they were double-celled, but they actually took their life when they were alone in that cell by themselves. When we stumbled onto this revelation, we knew that we had to go back and look at all of those 150 or 180 suicides that happened over the past 20 years. And when we did, we discovered something that we never knew of before. It was alarming. It, it had led to transformative changes in the way we looked at suicide and what our trainings would look like and what our policies and what our procedures surrounding so many different areas of correctional health care and suicide prevention in prison. In other words, what you discovered was that you had been assuming that a double cell meant this was not considered solitary. But what you didn't take into consideration was the fact that every double cell left one of the people in the cell alone 
for a, a, a specific distinct amount of time every day. And that was what you were missing. And then you realized that it was being alone in the cell with no one there that was the trigger factor that allowed these suicidal thoughts to be acted upon, correct? I think that's fairly close. So when we went through the 180 or so suicides, we were able to identify six distinct categories of housing that all suicides fit into. The first category was that the person was double-celled, but they didn't take their life until their cellmate left. So they were double-celled, but their cellmate was away and they took their life when their cellmate was away. So they were alone in that cell. And that accounted for 30 of 195 suicides or 15%. At that point, we knew there was something about the physical being of being alone. So in our system, we said, what are the other easy ways that we are able to identify if somebody is alone? And Rabbi Kolakowski will tell you in the Department of Corrections, if somebody has a Z code, it is a prison classification in Pennsylvania that if you have a Z code, you will have a single cell. So you'll never have a cellmate. What would be the factors that determine that an incarcerated person be labeled a Z code? That's a great question. And that was one of the first things we asked ourselves. So let's go take a look at the Z code policy. This is a a prison classification code that we, the prison staff, are giving out. So there are some really, really good reasons we give Z codes to people. Uh, One really good reason is if you like to hurt people and you like to victimize other people, so you are a danger to other people. The general idea is as a prison violence mitigation tool, we give you a Z code and I put you in a cell by yourself. The general thinking is if you're in a cell by yourself, You can't hurt other people. That's a really good reason to put somebody in a cell and let them allow them to live by themselves. Another good reason that we give Z codes is if a person has a high risk of being victimized. So let's say they are a small, effeminate looking person who uh, prison staff deem to be unable to protect themselves adequately in this kind of environment. The general thinking is in order to keep that person safe, we would give that person a Z code so that somebody could not take advantage of them or hurt them seriously. So those are two good reasons that our policy said you can give somebody a Z code. Another good reason was if somebody had serious medical issues like being blind or deaf, or they were living with a colostomy where they had a tube hooked up to their small or large intestines and they used this tube to have bowel movements. For the sake of the person's dignity, we may give that person a Z code uh, so that they can live in peace and dignity. Those are good reasons why we gave Z codes. Unfortunately, in our review of the Z code policy back in 2018, when we began to discover this data, we discovered that there were some reasons we were giving Z codes that were not good reasons by themselves. Uh, One of the reasons was if you had a significant mental illness, a serious mental illness that was impairing your life in some way, we could consider giving you a Z code for that singular reason. That doesn't seem to make sense, right? So somebody who is living with a major depression, an appropriate intervention does not seem, let's put them in a room by themselves, right? That doesn't necessarily, when you look back at it, it doesn't make sense. I would say probably what might have been behind that thinking was the person might be so verbal and might be so open about it 
that the idea of two people actually sharing a cell and going to sleep at a certain time and waking up, when a person's emotional issues are so large that any time of the day or night, they might burst out talking about them or speaking about it or getting up. So it's sort of uncomfortable to be living with such a person. So maybe that was the idea of, Ken, we couldn't find this guy a roommate. Maybe that was part of it. Quite possible, right? And I think you're right, Rabbi. I think the original thinking may have also included that if somebody was experiencing psychotic symptoms and they were talking to themselves or acting bizarre or being paranoid, that in general, that type of specific case would be considered appropriate. I would actually classify that example I just gave as being a potential danger to other people. So not necessarily the mental illness, but being a danger to other people is a good reason. The final reason that we discovered, which was, uh, I don't think originally contemplated when it was put in place because this, we didn't have this data available in our organization, was that we were giving Z codes out for people who have tried to kill themselves before, and they were self-mutilative, or they were considered and assessed to be a danger to themselves. So for that unilateral reason, we were saying, okay, you've tried to kill yourself before you have a history of suicide attempts for this singular reason. We're going to give you a Z code because I, I think the understanding was we believe that that was a safe intervention for that person. And as I proceed through the rest of this data, you're going to see that we discovered that it wasn't ideal. It was probably contraindicated would be the right way to describe it. So in our data set of the 195 suicides that have happened in the last 22 years, we discovered that more than one out of every five or 21% of those 195 suicides had Z codes. So 40 out of the 195 had Z codes. So in two categories, the same type of uh, physical setting, the person being alone, we've already accounted for almost 40% of the entire variance of the 195 suicides. So we pushed through the rest of this data, the 195 we found this largest cohort of people, uh, which we identified and categorized as being alone without a Zico in prison. We know that most often people have cellmates, but not always. And there are good reasons why people don't always have cellmates. What has happened in Pennsylvania over the last 10 to 15 years, uh, especially under uh, Secretary John Wetzel's direction, is our population has plummeted. So over the last 10 to 15 years, from when I was hired in 2010, our population was hovering around 52 to 53,000. As of right now, we're hovering someplace in between 35,500 and 36,000 people. Uh, it has dropped dramatically. And so with population going down, frankly, I believe that we've had more space and we have very good staff who are humane and professional. And we believe that housing people alone is safe and it's comfortable. Unfortunately, uh, we discovered that six out of every 10 or 114 of 195 suicides that have happened in the last 22 years were housed alone in a cell and they didn't have a Z code. As you can see very quickly from these three categories, uh, we've explained more than 90% of all suicides. The last three categories that we have are really eye-opening. The first category we have is that the person came out of their cell, but they took their life in private. It's only happened three times. So the person came out of their cell, they either went into a closet or they went into a shower. So they were out of their cell, but it was in private. It's happened three times, which is about 1%. 
The next category is two people in the last 22 years came out of their cell and killed themselves in public, which in prison, what that looks like is somebody comes out of their cell and jumps off a tier. It's only happened twice where the person has died in the last 22 years. And finally, and this was the most alarming for us, uh, where we had originally believed that one out of every four suicides happened where there was two people in a cell and one person took their life. What we discovered when we looked at the past 195 suicides, it's actually only happened six times or approximately 2%. And so a simple pie chart that we put together uh, really explains this quite clearly. Someplace between 94 and 95% of all suicides that have happened in the last 22 years within our system have happened with a person who is in a cell by themselves at the time of their death. So this was brand new information for us. And to tell this story quite clearly, uh, when I had put all of these little pieces together, I said to myself, okay, you made a big mistake and we've corrected it. Before I can go to the administration and say with some confidence this time that uh, we have a big problem, we need to fix it. I said to myself, I need to test this. I need to prove that what we've come up with is correct. So what I did was I put together a chart of all of the suicides that have happened in our organization over the past 50 years. So now we went back even further and we looked at about 350 suicides and we put them in order by the number of suicides that happened at each state correctional institution over the past half century. And we ordered them from least to greatest. And so we put this simple chart together. And my idea was, I'm going to look at those three to four prisons that have had the most suicides, and we'll focus on those prisons, and we'll figure out exactly what is it that these people are doing so wrong, right? The idea was they've had the most suicides, they must be doing something incorrectly. And the places that we have identified over the past half century that have had the most suicides in our system have been Greaterford, Huntington, Pittsburgh, and Camp Hill. And so I would ask either of you, do you have any theories or guesses as to why those four prisons have had the most suicides in our system's history? One thing, of course, is you have to put in the factor, how long has that prison been open, right? For example, Waymark, have they been open since 1971? They've been open for about 35 years. Okay. So that's one factor, right? That if, if a place is you know, on your chart, but you have corrections since we're looking at this chart since 1971, some of these places weren't even open in 71, right? So you would have to discount that part. And perhaps the other reason has to do with the fact that, you know, you have a larger percentage of inmates. I don't know anything about these prisons, but is it possible that Greaterford Phoenix, even it's been open longer and there's more inmates there than there are, let's say, in uh, Mercer and Fayette? So you're exactly right. That took me about a week to figure out, and it took you about 30 seconds. I should have called the rabbis to help me, but you're exactly right. Greaterford, Huntington, Pittsburgh, and Camp Hill are some of the largest prisons on the East Coast, and they've been open the longest. And so you're exactly right. Once again, I was asking the wrong question. Instead of me asking, what are these prisons down here that have had the most suicides? What are they doing so wrong? I was asking the wrong question. I needed to be asking, what are the prisons down at the other end of the chart that have had basically no suicides in the last 50 years? What are they doing so right? And so I looked at four distinct prisons. And the rabbi's prison is definitely one of them. 
So I looked at Waymart, Cambridge Springs, Laurel Highlands, and Kehana Boot Camp. Those four prisons have been open for at least 30 years. So we're mitigating that issue of they've only been open for a few years. That explanation fits for Banner Township, right? So uh, they've only had 10 suicides because they haven't been in the game long enough. They've only been open for about seven or eight years. That makes sense. But not for these four prisons down at the other end. They've been open for a minimum of 30 years apiece. And all four of those prisons specialize in treating and housing very high-risk populations for suicide or populations that through data and empirical research, we could expect more suicides amongst this population. So SCI Waymark, Rabbi Kolakowski, can you tell us what it is that SCI Waymark specializes in? They specialize in, and again, I'm not representing Waymart or the DLC. I'm speaking on my own, but I can say that I'm employed there, and we specialize in mental health. That's what more than half of our inmates are in some kind of, not only are they mentally ill, do they have, a, there's not only a C code, but we have A, B, C, and D, and C and D are more severely mentally ill. And most of our inmates are either C code or D code inmate, but not only are they coded as such, but they're receiving treatment as such. Treatment worrying. We also have a geriatric portion and we have drug treatment, which most prisons have a drug treatment, but we house some of the, the most mentally ill. We're the only prison that has in Pennsylvania that's the FTC, which is the Forensic Treatment Center. And then under that, we also have the MHU, Mental Health Unit, and we have the ICU care unit. And like I said, the geriatric would be the PC under personal care units. We have a lot of very specialized treatment units that focus on treating mental illness and other issues. I couldn't have said it any better myself, and I won't even try to. You're, you're exactly right. Waymart houses the sickest of the sick mentally ill population in the Department of Corrections. So it's surprising that they've, in more than 30 years of being open, they've only had two suicides. For us, it was surprising. The next place we looked at was SCI Cambridge Springs. They're a female institution. They house uh, females who we know the acuity and the prevalence of mental illness in the female population is significantly higher compared to the male population. And they uh, struggle with serious drug and alcohol problems as well at very, very high rates, uh, suggesting to us that they should have had more than one suicide in the past 35 years. And up until uh, this past year, they've never had a suicide. And then we have Laurel Highlands, which is um, towards the western part of Pennsylvania. They specialize in delivering the highest level of medical care in our system. And so they specialize in dealing with end-of-life issues. And so when I saw this data that they have never had a suicide, to me, it was counterintuitive. My original thought was given their population, we would have expected some more than zero over the past 30 years. And finally, Kehana Boot Camp. Uh, deals with people who are short minimum sentenced, and they tend to be a little younger, and they're struggling with drug and alcohol issues as well. So these four prisons taken together house very high-risk populations, but amongst the four of them, being open for more than 120 years of operation, together, they've had three suicides. And I was finally asking the right question, what is it that you're doing so right with your population? And so we talked to the staff. And when we talked to the staff at each of the institutions, they basically told us the same thing. They said to us, we've learned how to work with these people. We've learned how to treat these people the right way. We've learned how to uh, talk to them professionally and treat them humanely. 
And while I agreed with all of that, there was something with the data that was suggesting there was something else at play. And what we discovered, um, and for the past 10 years, uh, part of my work includes traveling out to every one of these prisons. There is a unique physical plant characteristic of each of these four prisons. And it is that uh, these four prisons, a majority of the entire population lives in an open dorm style setting that basically looks like numerous gymnasiums within big buildings. And what that looks like is you have 40 or 50 people living in one congregate setting. And when I initially saw this and put two and two together, it didn't make sense to me. I was like, well, what is it? Is it that the officers, they have a better line of sight? Is it that the uh, patients feel safer around each other? But then it started to come together. These people who are living in these four prisons over the last 120 years together, collectively, they rarely ever have a chance to be alone. They are living in a congregate setting. People are always present, whether it's another correctional professional or another person who's incarcerated. They are rarely, rarely ever alone. And I think that that is to help explain why those prisons have had so much success over the past 30 or 35 years. What I find fascinating when I read the article that you presented was that the staff from the prison themselves just like you heard from Rabbi Kolakowski's, you could hear the pride in his voice of working in such a wonderful place, but they thought it had to do with how they were treated professionally, uh, how the staff was trained in psychological issues. It wasn't like your typical CO, you know, the screws, and, you know, and it's all about getting the billy club out with discipline. That's what they thought. And it was interesting to me that you felt that that itself especially the craftiness of a person who's trying to commit suicide, that wouldn't be it. We know if a person has those tendencies, there's ways they could sort of like nod their heads and pretend that they're getting better. Meanwhile, holding these devilish type of thoughts about how they want to do themselves in. And I thought that was something courageous in your mind saying, yes, I hear what you're saying, but maybe even those good-hearted people who have given their, their lives and their professional careers towards having a more humane prison facility, they might have been missing the real reason, which is what you were discovering. You're spot on. And the way I've attempted to bring that kind of realization to life is uh, this title I've been using, which Rabbi Kolakowski saw when I spoke to he and his colleagues a couple weeks ago. I call this issue Enola, right? E-N-O-L-A. It's a, just a play on letters and words. It's the word alone backwards. So the general idea is this feature was always present. You know, these prisons have been open for 30 years. It's been in right in front of our faces and we didn't see it. It was there, but we didn't acknowledge the strength and the power and the dangers. And I would say the protections that were afforded by being with other people, contrarily, the dangers of being alone. And so it's a play on words. I wanted to bring us to this other, which I found something so fascinating. Every one of us has been affected so deeply by COVID. And we are hearing, and I've actually done other podcasts with psychologists, psychiatrists, uh, counselors, and other rabbis and clinicians and health professionals. And they've all spoken about the increase in mental health issues, the divorces, and, and suicides, of course, as well, the increased drug use, the alienation, 
And you would have thought that as the prisons went into the extreme version of alienation and COVID procedure, that that would actually stroke strongly all of the suicidal tendencies of the inmates. And, and, and most people, I, I'm sure, before they would listen to this program would have said, oh, yeah, uh, there was probably an increase in suicides in prisons as well, the same way that was happening in the rest of the general population. But why don't you tell us what you discovered as far as COVID? You're precisely right. And I've had the same inquiries and I've polled people, how many suicides do you think we've had during COVID? People say 30, 40, 50, because let's be honest, this has been quite the dramatic shift for everybody. Even those of us who are not incarcerated, our, our lives have changed dramatically. Arguably one of the most stressful, strenuous times uh, in the past century. I don't think that that would be um, debatable. And so in the middle of COVID, so like around uh, mid-June of 2021, we received an inquiry from a media outlet locally. And they said, hey, Pennsylvania Department of Corrections, basically, this is what it sounded like. They said, uh, we know you don't do really, really well with preventing suicides. And so tell us how many suicides have happened since COVID began, because we'd like to run a story about it and tell the public about really how well everything's going. And so they came to our office because we, we maintain this data uh, for good reason. And they asked me the question, how many suicides have we had since COVID started? And I said, well, that's not really a fair question to ask. You know, I could give you a number. It might be 10, it might be 20, it might be 40, but you really don't have anything to compare it to. I said, so I'll do this. I'll give you the total number of suicides that have happened since COVID began in our system, which at that period in time was a period of about 16 months. So we say that COVID officially started the beginning of March of 2020 up until the beginning of June 2021. So that's a period of 16 months time. I'll give you the total number of suicides during the life of COVID. And then so that we're comparing apples to apples, I'll give you the immediate 16 months before COVID began. So you have 16 months before COVID started and then the 16th month period of COVID. And we'll compare the totals of suicides that have occurred in those two timeframes. And we'll let the data speak for itself. And what we discovered as we began to further understand this paradoxical issue of being alone is that uh, we knew what we were going to find. Uh, and what we found was uh, before COVID started, the immediate 16 months before COVID started, we had 25 suicides. During the same period of time, 16 months, the life of COVID, arguably the most stressful time over the past 50 to 100 years, we had 12 suicides, or a reduction of more than 50% of suicides. And so when we ask people who are either familiar or not familiar with prison, how could you explain this? How could you explain a reduction of more than 50% in total number of suicides in a very stressful situation amongst an already extremely vulnerable population? Do you have any theories of how you could explain this dramatic reduction, either of you fellas? <laughs> well, we all know that uh, in COVID, the doctor, it wasn't just the lockdown prevention. Uh, there was also, of course, a greater checking in on, because since so many people were put in their isolation, so you might have more frequent checks on them because you know, they weren't allowed out as much as they were. That might be one of them, one of the reasons. Also, it could be, you know, as you say, you know, there was such a ultra sensitivity 
to health issues that even the other person who shared the cell with that person, counterintuitively, there might have been a greater sense of what's wrong with this guy. This guy's coughing, this guy's this. There's a greater sensitivity to the other. That might be one thing that might have been a reason why suicides went down. But, but you're actually, I think it, you're hinting at something even more than that, right? I'll chime in with that as well. Like they were missing a lot of the things. On one hand, the inmates, they were able to manage COVID because they said, well, now you guys know how we feel. That was kind of the attitude that the inmates kind of gave to us as the staff. But more than that, there were so many things missing that you would have thought that there would have been more stress. And there was more stress because they couldn't go to church, they couldn't go to school, they couldn't go to work. They were just cooped up in their cells, you know, so they had a lot of stress. But I think we're going to, that could be a segue to what, what the answer was. Right. I mean, other explanations we've had, Rabbi Kolakowski, were, well, we gave them video visits and we gave them extra food and we gave them free cable. But I think there was something more to it. And as we know, uh, one of the main COVID mitigation strategies that we put in place was to reduce movement, right? So in order to prevent the spread of the virus, both amongst the uh, patient population and of the staff employee population, we severely restricted movement, which means in prison, we were locked down for a lot of time. So those people who were double-celled, we reduced the opportunity for their cellmate to go away, to go to yard, to go to chow, to go to school, to go to medline, to go to a day room to play chess, to go to chapel. We completely eliminated that opportunity. So the people who were double-celled during COVID, they were double-celled. And we have data to show that literally and figuratively, we completely eliminated, unintentionally, we completely eliminated those suicides that occurred throughout the life of COVID as being categorized as double-celled, but their cellmate was away because that didn't happen during COVID. If you were double-celled during COVID, you were double-celled during COVID. So when the person who has these suicidal thoughts, the one who wants to, who would kill himself with his bed sheets or whatever it was that he would use, it was an event that privacy, again, what is the mental factor that it has to be in private? You know, when you're doing away with yourself, you're not going to live at all anymore. And yet, you don't want it to be in front of somebody else. It's interesting. I, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist, but I'm sure this is something you've tried to think about because by forcing the people in their rooms, whether they're watching more videos or getting cable, whatever it was, the person who had he been alone because the other guy was playing chess somewhere would take the bed sheet and strangulate himself, now stop doing that. What is it about suicide that you don't want it to be in front of somebody else? Is it the other person will stop you? The other person cares so much that he will stop you from doing it? Or is there something about the desire to do it that is so uniquely individualistic that it can't be done with the eyes of someone else on you? We're not talking about the reduction of suicide attempts. We're talking about a reduction of completed suicide. That's right. And to be fair, to be clear, during COVID, the total number of suicide attempts per year doubled. So when we were averaging 150 to 190 per year, uh, the years of COVID, we were closer to 400 a year. So keeping people locked in their cells long-term is not appropriate. It's not a long-term solution. And thank God, other medical interventions have 
helped push us away from having to do that. But Rabbi Kivlevitz, I think it's a little bit of both. And there, there's more to it when we try to answer that question, why? So I don't think people kill themselves because they're alone, right? Like that's not the reason why. There are some things I think that we do in private. You can use your, your imagination. There are some things that happen in private. And this in general, I think within a, a prison setting, uh, may be one of them. But I think there are also reasons why people don't die by suicide when they're double celled. I think there are really good reasons. The first good reason is that if you have a cellmate and you are trying to kill yourself, what we have found is that many times uh, that cellmate intervenes. So the most popular way, more than nine out of 10 of every prison suicide that has ever happened in our system, it's closer to 99 out of 100, it's by hanging. And so when somebody tries to hang themselves in a cell and the person has a cellmate, the cellmate intervenes. They're the person that jumps down immediately and picks the person up and is alleviating the person's weight from the noose. They are the front line of defense. They become the, the, the main intervention. And so we think that's one reason why it doesn't happen. There is an immediate response. Another reason why we think people don't die by suicide when they're double-celled is because if you start to hang yourself in your cell, if you are too afraid to go and lift the person up off of the noose, one thing that these people will do, they will scream for help. They will scream immediately for correctional staff to come and intervene. And I think there are a number of reasons of doing that, but mainly because they're humans and they see somebody else in a scary situation and they want to get help. They become a human being immediately and seriously, and they call for help. If you don't have a cellmate, that help doesn't come. And then we are relying on the, the true frontline of suicide prevention defense, which are corrections officers. So if our corrections officers are only doing security rounds every 30 minutes or once an hour, that gives these people who are in a cell by themselves a lot of time. There are a few other reasons why I think people don't kill themselves when they're double cell. Suicide risk, it vacillates. So risk goes up and it goes down. So if I go home tonight and I find out that something terrible has happened to my son or daughter or my wife, things are going to change in my life immediately and unpredictably. And so uh, we can't read people's minds and we can't track every single phone call of every single person. People get bad news when they're incarcerated. And so risk goes up and it goes down. And by having another person present, it accounts for that vacillating nature. And by that other person being there, it helps keep that person safe. We also think having people celled together increases the chances of both of those people expanding their social network, which we know is a protective factor against suicide. A protective factor is something that helps protect us against suicide. The reasons I think personally why people die when they're double-celled or when they're single-celled are many of the exact opposite reasons why people don't die when they're double-celled. So if you're single-celled and you try to hang yourself, there is no immediate response from your cellmate. The cellmate isn't there to, to alleviate the weight off of that noose immediately. There's no cellmate to scream for help. There's no cellmate to expand your social network with, right? And increase that protective factor. Another reason why I think there is an association between people who are single-celled and people who are dying by suicide in prison is we think there is a strong connection between violent people. And so research, we've, we've known for a long period of time that people who are violent towards others also have some of the same risk factors of being violent towards themselves. 
But in prison, this idea uh, manifests its head so dangerously. And so I'll give you a quick example. Imagine you're in prison and you are an inmate, you're, you're, incarcer- you're an incarcerated person, and you assault a staff member, right? So you hurt another staff member. How does the prison industry mitigate the risk of violence that that person presents? How do we keep other incarcerated people safe and other staff safe from this person who is dangerous towards others? What do we do? So the usual attitude is like you were saying before is, all right, that's solitaire for you. You're never going to see anybody else, right? Which is like you say, the usual knee-jerk response to someone who's been violent. That's solitary for you, right? Right. I mean, I, I wouldn't use the word solitary, but we put them in a cell by themselves, either in general population or uh, in restrictive housing. But we put them in a cell by themselves because we believe that is the safest place, not only for that person, but also for other incarcerated people and for staff. Unfortunately, the unintended and inadvertent consequence, as we know now, of putting somebody in a cell by themselves, even if they're dangerous towards other people, is that we unintentionally and inadvertently increase the risk of suicide for that person. Because we know that more than 94% of all suicides that we have on record Uh, over the past 22 years have happened in a setting where the person is in a cell by themselves. And so it is this unintended spillover effect of people who are dangerous. They end up getting put in a cell by themselves. It's almost really a conundrum that doesn't have much of an answer. Because if the person is a danger to a cellmate, then we can't endanger the cellmate by having that person there. This is always an inexact science about weighing the benefits and the cost. When you have someone who is a danger to people around them, even though they're a danger to themselves, you know, you have to decide to actually house them with someone and endanger that person who's relatively innocent, who's just serving their time, maybe for some other violent crime, but not necessarily deserving the death. Then you put them with a person who is, who has such violent tendencies that can unleash them against someone else. So even though you're risking that person killing themselves, but the person who you're putting him as a roommate shouldn't really be put into this type of danger factor for the sake of saving somebody else. As we all know, we hate having to take away everybody's freedom, but sometimes for the good of the greater community, we need to limit people. And I think that's really unfortunate what you have to say in this case as well. I agree, Rabbi. And I'll tell you, my response to that would be, uh, we are beginning to ask the right questions. And that conundrum that you referred to is becoming more and more clear to us of how do we assess it and how do we assess it appropriately. And I'll give you an example based off of the short response you just gave there. One of the greatest fears that we have, I think, as correctional staff is unintentionally putting other people in danger. Safety is foundational to what we do in prison. And so I thought about this when we discovered this data. And I said to myself, you know, it would be interesting if we could compare the total number of suicides that have happened over the past 50 years, and then let's compare it to the number of inmate on inmate homicides that have happened over the past 50 years, because that's what you're referring to, right? Is this consequence where we say, okay, let's double sell these two people because we're afraid of one of them hurting themselves. But the unintended consequence being that 
somebody in that cell might get murdered. So I'll pose the question to you. How many suicides have we had in the last 50 years? What was it, 195? That was only in a 20-year period. So over the last 50 years, we're closer to about 360, 355, 360 suicides. How many inmate-on-inmate murders have we had in 50 years? Obviously, there you have the other guy screaming, and hopefully the COs are around. I'm going to assume that it's going to be less. I'm going to assume that it was maybe half that amount. 150-ish. 25. And so to put that number in context, I'll share this with you. Over the past 20 years now, we're talking about in the community, and these numbers are from the CDC. Over the past 20 years in the United States, how many suicides have happened out in the community? I don't have those numbers. Why don't you tell us, doctor? 1.4 million, approximately 1.4 million suicides. How many murders in the last 20 years in the United States? For the sake of time, it's about half. It's about 750,000. So twice as many suicides as homicides in the community. So a ratio of one to two. If you think about the numbers I just gave you of suicides to homicide ratio in our organization, and I think this is pretty consistent that you'll find across the United States, 14 to one. So for every 14 suicides, one murder. That, of course, has to do with the fact that this is a controlled environment where you have the COs and you have other factors why the numbers aren't closer. So you have to figure that out. Uh, You're saying if you deal with it statistically, you have to decide how much am I endangering this other person? If the chances are one in 14 versus the suicide number, then maybe despite the fact this person's tendency to violence Perhaps it makes sense to house them with somebody else is what you're saying. Right. I think that's close. I think one of the other real big criticisms of this idea was that in our system and again, across the United States, there is a intervention that occurs when a patient says, I'm going to kill myself or they identify or our staff identify the person as being high risk of suicide. So Rabbi Kolakowski, what happens at Waymart or at any prison if somebody says, I'm going to kill myself? What happens to that person? What do we do with them to keep them safe? Well, we were giving Z code, and now instead of the Z code, we're putting them in the observation cell. Uh, you had mentioned that they're making rounds maybe once an hour or twice an hour. Now we've increased the general rounds to four times an hour every 15 minutes. The COs have to make rounds, but when someone is on the suicide watch, that you'll have an officer or more than one officer sitting there outside of a cell, essentially making sure he's not alone. Even if he's alone in the cell, he's housed alone. There's a barrier between the officer and the inmate, but there's always light of vision. We don't leave him out of our sight. Exactly. You've heard this story before. And so, the plan was we take that person and we put them in an observation cell by themselves and we make sure that they are safe. And the original criticism of this data was, how do you explain this? When somebody is very high risk of suicide, we put them in a cell by themselves. But that's not exactly accurate. And as Rabbi Kulikowski just described, what actually happens is we put that person in a cell by themselves. We put a corrections officer immediately outside the door, and they are constantly watching the person to ensure that the person is never, ever alone. And so 
There are a lot of explanations that appear to support this concern that we have. We're not saying that everybody needs to be double-celled. That's not practical and that's not safe. But what we are saying is that when we are making selling decisions, when corrections officers and when unit management professionals are making selling decisions, you just can't look at the person's risk of violence. You also have to look at that person's level of suicide risk. And you have to look at these questions and answer them simultaneously and make the best peniological decision you can uh, for both people who are involved and the safest decision for everybody involved, including the staff. And so historically, I'm not certain that we always did that. I think we considered the person's risk of violence and we didn't necessarily contemplate the person's risk of suicide, which I think the data and our procedures tend to support that you know this was unknown to us and the unintended consequence was well what we saw and that there were changes that needed to happen and since these changes have happened things have been working much better and much more safer as we look at suicide prevention through this lens doctor i just i want to wrap this up with three little points which i think you could comment on maybe the third one is not so little and maybe that's really an area that is a little more speculative. Uh, the first one is, you know, we had Dr. Decreci on a couple of weeks ago, and he is one of the intake uh, psychologists who evaluates people. I think, first of all, what you're saying is it's so crucial at the intake because so much is how you're originally designated. And we need to train the intake persons and the procedure to include these factors in order to make that designation. It's so much harder once you have a designation to change that designation. However, there's a moment before a person is issued, I guess, the jumpsuit completely where he's going to get that marker that's going to indicate where they're going. So the intake people have to be aware of it. The second thing I would say, and we talked about this in previous programs, why isn't there in all prisons cameras in every room consistently. And there's someone at some console watching what's going on. You talk about the cellmate having that innate humanity to scream and say, stop, come and help this guy. But there's sometimes there's a cellmate who doesn't care. And sometimes there's a cellmate who snores through any sort of noise and is just sleeping. But if there are cameras in every cell and there's a person who's paid to be watching that, shouldn't that help? I mean, we talked about abuse that occurs in prisons on this program. And we've talked about, we've had former incarcerated individuals who talked about the way they were abused and kicked and spoken to, and that they lacked the evidence on camera to be able to justify their claims. Why can't we just, we put cameras everywhere. Why can't we put a camera in every single cell and have it monitored? I'll start with the last one. Yeah, I think cameras are important. But cameras don't save lives. Uh, people do. And so I think you, you mentioned it in your, uh, your description. If you're going to have cameras, you need to have people monitoring them. If you don't, what ends up happening is you have cameras that record suicides. And so people need to be, you know, in this hypothetical approach, you'd need people dedicated to watching those cameras. They, and they couldn't be doing anything else. Like you can't have them you know, writing passes or doing cell searches because then they're not watching the camera. And so I think it becomes, again, in this hypothetical scenario, an issue of resources. And I think others might say 
how practical is that? I think there are some solutions and interventions that uh, we haven't tried yet that we don't know about that are going to come to light and that we're going to continue to see gains in driving the total number of suicides down to zero. That's where we're headed. So the way I understand your response is, is that the monotony of sitting in front of those a video bank doesn't necessarily lend itself to a sharp-eyed person noticing everything. To find a person who's willing to stay up all night and train people, it's going to be an extra cost. And it's also a certain quality of mind and abilities that aren't that common, that you'll have someone who cares enough and can push themselves to actually watch what most of the night is going to be just boring people sleeping and yet notice that difference to be able to be the Johnny on the spot. So I'm just restating what, what I think you're implying. And it's too bad because I think there's other benefits other than stopping suicides, as I indicated, in terms of the the guards or the COs knowing that everything is under camera watch. And the same way, you know, policemen are now given these body cams. And and this has been a way to stave off abuse at traffic stops. This is a way that we can ensure that everything is recorded. And when we know there's consequences, people act in a different way. Let me go to the last point here. And one of the reasons why Rabbi Kolakowski met you was that you wanted to present this data to chaplains and people of faith specifically, people who not only are of faith, but people whose job is to promote faith and to be a listener and to encourage a religious idea across the spectrum, the very wide spectrum of all the types of religion. You know, one of the things you talk about, whether it's Enola or alone, what we are trying to combat is the idea that although you might be physically alone, there might be ways that a person can feel he's part of a society, that he's part of a community, he's part of a a cadre of believers that transport them someplace, even though they are found in the depths and the bowels of a prison, but they're really part of something else. And in that way, we know, of course, whether it's Martin Luther King in the Birmingham jail or, you know, the Count of Monte Cristo, whoever it is from our literature and from our history, we know that there are people who are able to retain, even in that incarcerated state, a connection. And that's part of where faith comes in. The point is, is that we, we need to have smart understanding of people of faith as well. And they need to be part of the conversation. I think the idea of marginalizing, okay, here's our rabbi to bless the food. We need to realize that they've got to be partners in this. And, and, and they have to understand the psychological underpinnings of what's going on. And, and this is really a ground base. Let's end just with one last point. From what we've heard tonight, I already, in my intro, talked about how important it is to know how to use statistics, how important it is. And I love your story about the media outlet. The media wants sensationalism. And, and we have a tendency to sort of like impose what we believe the story is, despite what the facts are. And I, I think those are great lessons. But I think, Doctor, let's give you the last word here. What can we take from our knowledge of what you've discovered in terms of helping everyone outside of the prison walls? What would be one of the, the messages that especially many of our listeners who aren't in prison and don't have loved ones there, what is it that they can take from what we've been discussing in terms of the people around them? 
Appreciate it. And uh, thank you both, gentlemen, for uh, giving me uh, more than the time that you promised. This has been great. Uh, I'm glad both of you uh, remain engaged in the conversation. I would give you two final thoughts here. The first has to do with really this intersection of spirituality, faith, religion, and this concept of being alone. My understanding of this concept has evolved over the past three or four years, and it's more complicated than it seems on the surface, like the idea of Enola. And so my thought was most religions, and both rabbis, you know better than me, spiritualities and faiths, there's this grounding base in a connection to something else that's bigger than yourself, something outside of yourself, and then sometimes it's within you. And to me, that sounds like an effort at reducing the feelings of being by yourself and being alone. And so I think that there is growth, you know, kind of for mental health and chaplaincies, not only in prisons, uh, but also in the communities to work together to help people who are struggling to feel alone so that they can feel, as you say, Rabbi Kivlevitz, feel connected to a bigger community and to feel less alone. The other issue I would share with your viewers is prison is not the community, and the community is not prison. And it's, it might sound simple, but uh, the most popular way that people take their life in the community is with firearms. And more than 50% of deaths happen with firearms in the community. In prison, we've never had a firearm suicide on record uh, in the last 50 years. So these settings are completely different. Uh, but I think there are some lessons that transfer from both settings. And the one that I would share, just one, there are many, but the one I would share is that, you know, if you're worried about somebody or somebody's well-being or their safety, uh, whether it's in prison or whether it's in community, don't leave that person alone. Be with that person, connect with them, get them the help they need. This chronic and acute risk factor of suicide is prevalent both in the community and uh, in our prison setting. And so I think that is noteworthy of sharing with you and your viewers. Definitely check in on people and return those texts, <laughs> especially you know, we have a tendency to press the button. I'll call you later. I'm busy right now. And we need to think about who is it that's trying to reach out to us and realize how we can all really be responsible for each other. I am grateful on behalf of humanity. I know it sounds very pretentious to me that you decided not to work for McDonald's, not to take your doctorate in business administration and help sell more cheeseburgers, but actually to be able to make a difference in the lives of people who unfortunately have made wrong decisions. And perhaps we could salvage as we could say those lives, uh, we can keep them alive. And with the type of help and professionalism that we know is abound in, in, in Pennsylvania and other states, we can actually correct and uplift and make the world a little bit better. That's about it, my friends. Thank you again, Dr. Malachek, to stir with love. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.